the Honorable Chief Justice and Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of North Carolina. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina has resumed sitting for the dispatch of business. God save the state and this honorable court. The next two cases have been combined. We have State versus Nunez and State versus Diaz Tomas. Uh, in both cases, Justice Berger is recused. Uh, we will hear from uh, the first appellant. May it please the court. Good morning. I'm Assistant Appellate Defender Nicholas Woomer Dieters on behalf of the appellant Edgar Edgardo Nunez. I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal, please. Here's what happened to Mr. Nunez. He cited for three traffic offenses, and one of those is in for impaired driving. He missed his court dates, and as a result, three things happened. First, orders for his arrest were issued. Second, the DMV revoked his automobile operating privileges, which it was required to do by statute. So there's no way that Mr. Nunez could drive legally. Third, the state filed a dismissal of the charges with leave. This was a calendaring procedure where Mr. Nunez's cases were removed from the criminal docket, but the prosecution was otherwise still active. The cases remained under investigation Mr. Nunez could be apprehended and so forth. Eventually, Mr. Nunez was arrested for failing to appear in court. And at that point, he became available to answer the charges. The state could have put his case back on the criminal docket and essentially resumed the criminal process from right where it was paused at the point where Mr. Nunez failed to appear in court. Instead, the state elected to keep Mr. Nunez's charges dismissed with leave. This made it impossible for him to drive legally because again, by statute, the DMV was only allowed to restore his operating privileges if he resolved the charges. But he couldn't do that because his cases were not on the court's calendar. His lawyer, Mr. Lebedev, tried to get his cases back on the calendar by filing a motion to reinstate the charges in district court. The motion presented legal arguments as to why Mr. Nunez was entitled to have his cases recalendered, and I'll address those shortly. But the motion also made a number of factual allegations that ought to disturb all of us who, who administer criminal the criminal justice system in the state. The gist of those allegations was that the prosecutor said the state would only put Mr. Nunez's case back on the calendar if he pled guilty to impaired driving and waived his right to appeal to Superior Court. The motion also alleged that it is common practice in Wake County for prosecutors to refuse to recalendar impaired driving cases that have been dismissed with leave unless defendants plead guilty and waive the right to appeal to Superior Court. The district court judge gave the state an opportunity to respond to these allegations, but the state did not respond. And indeed, throughout the all the litigation in this case, the state has never denied these accusations. So there are at least three problems with the state's position here. First, at least in the motor vehicle context, defendants have a statutory right to have their cases brought to trial. Section 20-24.1, subsection B1, says that a defendant must be afforded an opportunity for a trial or a hearing with a reasonable time of the defendant's appearance. And that upon an emotion of a defendant, the court must order that a hearing or trial be heard within a reasonable time. Second, 
It's a violation of a defendant's due process rights when a prosecutor uses his calendaring authority to pressure a defendant into pleading guilty. When a defendant fails to appear on a motor vehicle charge, the DMV automatically revokes his operating privileges, and he can't, re he can't regain them until he, he disposes of the charges against him. So prosecutors are using the dismissal with leave calendaring mechanism to tell defendants, plead, plead guilty, waive your right to appeal, or your case will never be heard, and you'll never be, or, and you'll never be able to drive legally. Third, it's a violation of Klopfer versus North Carolina, which held that the state cannot keep criminal charges pending indefinitely against a defendant who is available for prosecution. Despite all of this, the district court denied Mr. Nunez's motion to have his, char his charges put back on the court calendar. He lacked an appeal of right from the decision, so he filed a certiorari petition to Superior Court, where, where he reiterated the factual allegations and the legal arguments that he made below. The Superior Court issued an order that summarily denied the, cer the certiorari petition, finding, finding that, that Mr. Nunez failed to provide sufficient cause to support the granting of his petition and that he was not entitled to the relief requested. So strictly speaking, that Superior Court order is the only thing under review by this court. And the standard of review is an abuse of discretion. And under the specific circumstances of this case, the Superior Court did abuse its discretion when, uh, when, uh, when it refused to review the district court's decision not to put Mr. Nunez's case back on the docket. Superior courts are supposed to control lower tribunals, and the writ of certiorari is one of the pr principal mechanisms for doing this. Now, if true, the allegations in Mr. Nunez's certiorari petition not only established grave violations of his statutory and constitutional rights, but the systemic and pervasive violation of defendants' rights throughout Wake County. And furthermore, because defendants were required to waive their right to appeal to Superior Court, the state's actions were unreviewable, except by certiorari. Now, these were highly credible allegations. They're made by two members of the bar criminal offense lawyers who regularly practice in Wake County. And they are not denied by the state when the district court gave it an opportunity to address them. One would think that they were, think that they were, um, that because, uh, one would think that at the very least, the Superior Court would want to investigate the allegations. Perhaps it could have remanded the case to the district court to hear evidence and make factual findings. The Superior Court here didn't do that. It just issued an order stating that the petition failed to provide sufficient cause to be granted. Does a trial court overreach its parameters when it compels the prosecution to call a case that the prosecution, for whatever reason, determines that it is not going to call a case? No, Your Honor, I don't. I don't believe so. And, and the reason is because the court, the trial court, always retains ultimate authority over its calendar. And this court has held that multiple times over decades. Um, in, in fact, one of the reasons that it, that it found that the stat, that, that the calendaring statutes were constitutional in Simeon was that uh, the, the statutes didn't didn't take away or 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 or, or undermine the courts. 
inherent authority over its own calendar. So there's a distinction here between the prosecutor's use of calendaring authority versus prosecutorial discretion. And I, I feel like the state's position in this case confuses those the, confuses that those two things. Calendaring authority is just that. It's the ability to put a case on the calendar to move it forward. Prosecutorial discretion concerns, you know, whether to, uh, whether to what witnesses to call, which assistant district attorney should be uh, assigned to prosecute the case, um, whether to dismiss the case, whether to offer a plea, agree, uh, plea bargain, and so forth. N nothing here interferes with that, with, with that, uh, you know, that, that, that duty, uh, that enumerated duty uh, of, of prosecutors in this case. Um, What's your response to the state's position that the legislature responded to the Clawfer opinion from the Supreme Court of the United States by having the statutory authority to be reposed in the prosecutions across the state to have that calendaring ability and that the prosecution only has that authority to calendar and thus to follow your logic the trial court would be in itself calendaring cases. Right. So I, I don't think that's actually so. It's correct that the um, that 15A 931 and 932 were drafted in response to the Klopfer decision, but this court has held again in Simeon that that is not an exclusive authority that's vested in the prosecution. It's a concurrent authority held by both the trial court. And the prosecutor, um, it, it is not, you know, it, the purpose, the, the distinction between a dismissal, or what the statute is, these two statutes attempt to do is distinguish between a dismissal without leave, which effectively terminates the prosecution, versus a, it's called dismissal without leave. But again, what this court has held is that that's simply a calendaring mechanism. So. Essentially, it's a way of keeping the court dockets from getting clogged up by cases where the defendant is unavailable for prosecution for whatever reason. But, you know, in, in the context of Klopfer, um, I, I don't think we can read the statutes as granting uh, the state or, or the prosecution ultimately authority over the calendar, um, you know, uh, in, in excluding the trial court's authority over the calendar. And furthermore, let me, you know, let me ask a quick follow up on that. Is it your argument that the trial court could have set the charges on the calendar without the prosecutor having taken some additional action to restart them or something? Absolutely. I mean, that's what that's a 20 24.1 B1 says uh, the, the court has the authority to do. Now, it doesn't have that's really all it can do, right? It can all it can say is. You know, this case is back on the calendar. It's moving forward now. It can't dictate to the, the the trial court cannot dictate to the prosecution how it should proceed with the prosecution itself. You know, what kinds of strategic decisions to make, whether to dismiss the case, whether to take it to trial, and so forth. But it does. But the, the court always has retained authority over its own calendar. Um, so again, I I I I want to make it clear that there's a there's a distinction between prosecutorial discretion. Which concerns, you know, the prosecution of cases and these decisions that are made every day by prosecutors throughout the state versus calendaring authority, which is concurrently shared by the trial court 
and the prosecution. And in fact, the trial court retains ultimately ultimate authority over the criminal calendars, uh, over its own criminal calendar, even if generally speaking, prosecutors are handling that duty on a day to day basis. When you say the trial court has the inherent authority to control its its own criminal calendars, uh, the case that is on upon which you're arguing and the companion case that's about to be argued as well, uh, the trial court has only before it at that time an administrative calendar. Is that correct? Your Your Honor, I. I think the, the trial court, if I understand, I, I, our position is that the trial court has countering, you know, has authority to put cases on its on, on the criminal docket, um, whether they're administrative or whether, um, you know, basically the, the court can call cases on on its own. Um, and, and in fact, this court has statutory authority to do so. And your position to be then that when Just, there is an administrative calendar that's established for a case that is put in a posture that it has been dismissed by the prosecution has not been brought back up when it is on an administrative calendar that the trial court in addressing the matter on the administrative calendar has the ability to place that case in an active posture on a criminal calendar that is to be set in the future by that trial court I, I think so, Your Honor. I mean, uh, the, I think the point is that the court has the authority to take a case and put it back on the calendar so that it is, it will move forward to be resolved in the way that the parties, um, in, you know, in however the, it ends up being resolved, but it has to be moving towards trial to conform to, to, to conform to the speedy trial and due process guarantees of the constitution. Um, in addition to the statutory um, you know, the statutory, uh, statutory right to, to have your, your, your case called for a hearing or trial within a reasonable time of your rear of, of, of reappearance. Um, I think that by reversing the superior court, this court would only reassert the trial courts, ultimately ultimate authority over its own calendar. And signal to superior court judges around the state that they need to supervise lower tribunals by granting certiorari petitions under appropriate circumstances. Holding for Mr. Nunez would not require any shift in this court's jurisprudence regarding the discretionary nature of certiorari petitions or the district attorney's ultimately uh, ultimate authority over prosecutions. It would simply clarify. The firmly established principle that a defendant does not waive his right to trial because he missed a court date. For these reasons, Mr. Nunez respectfully asked his court to reverse the superior court order denying his certiorari petition. And um, I'll, if there are no further questions, I'll save the, the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Thank you, counsel. At this point, I think we will hear from uh, the other uh, counsel for appellant. May I please the court? I'm attorney Anton Lebedev. I represent Rogelio Diaz Tomas. He's the second defendant in the companion case. I do incorporate everything Mr. Rumor Dieters stated, as there's going to be a lot of overlapping argument. However, I want to talk about other aspects of the case not mentioned by Mr. Rumor Dieters. Um, 
I would like to start with the first. Mr. Lebedev, before you proceed, I, I want to make sure I at least understand the procedural posture that we're in today. As I understand it, in Mr. Wimmer Dieter's case, the issue is simply did the uh, Court of Appeals err by upholding the denial of the uh, certiorari petition to the Superior Court, I believe in your case, in addition to that issue, we also have the substantive correctness or lack of correctness of the district court's decision to deny your reinstatement motion. Is that is my understanding of the one of the differences between the cases correct? Uh, correct, Your Honor. Um, I raised more procedural arguments on Mr. Rumor Dieters. Mr. Rumor Dieters uh, just raised an argument whether the Superior Court erred in denying certiorari. I'm also raising an argument whether mandamus is a proper remedy. Uh, and um, there's also a direct certiorari petition that was uh, but, but, but among the differences is that in Mr. We do not directly have before us in Mr. Rumor Dieters case the issue of the correctness of the trial court's denial of the reinstatement motion where we do have that issue before us in the case that you're involved in. That is correct, Your Honor. Okay. Um, and um, just to make the argument simpler, I would want to talk about the elements of certiorari first, uh, so I don't, I don't go back to it. Um, there's three elements essentially to certiorari. The first one is there's no right to appeal an order. And I believe that's pretty obvious given the circumstances. There's no statute providing an appeal of um, order denying a motion to reinstitute charges. And the second element I will talk about in more detail and it's merit or error committed below. So if there is no error and there is no merit to the argument made on motion, the certiorari should definitely fail. And I will point out here that the district court order contains a fairly obvious uh, reversible error because it relies on the wrong precedent. It relies on State versus Camacho instead of Simeon versus Hardin. In Camacho, the circumstances were that this court previously stated that it is um, uh, an excess of the court's authority to intervene and uh, recuse the entire prosecutorial office when only one prosecutor had a conflict of interest. While that stands for a general principle, the more on, on point uh, case is the um, Simeon case that Mr. Rumor Dieters mentioned, but um, it's more on point and it also is also a later case. And that case stated that the ultimate authority over managing a trial calendar is retained in the court. Uh, and um, what uh, the district court basically did is said, I ha we have no discretion at all to intervene in the prosecutorial authority when the uh, Simeon versus Hardin case said that there is such authority. Uh, and that alone would be a reversible error. Um, also, uh, I would point out what Mr. Rumor Dieters never mentioned um, due to time constraints is, um, uh, and the fact it wasn't argued in Nunez's brief is there's also a statute 158952G. And uh, it lists several factors that the trial court that the district court has to consider in granting a continuance. And those factors are applied when the defendant is available in court. The reason we have the whole dismissal with leave procedures and the defendant is not available, 
we don't need to go back to court and keep continuing the case for procedural um, um, a convenience. The case is literally removed off the dock and the defendant is not there. And once he comes back, it gets put back on the docket, and then the court considers the factors in 15A-952G, which is where a failure to grant a continuous will likely result in a miscarriage of justice and so on. Um, however, when the defendant is available and the case remains in VL status, uh, those factors become arbitrarily ignored, and uh, that would be an abuse of discretion on its own. Um, ultimately, dismissal of the fleet is just um, calendaring uh, mechanism. It's just a form of a continuance. It's an indefinite continuance. It's nothing more than that. So when a defendant is available and comes to court, we have to use a more definite um, continuance mechanism. Um, and um, I would like to reiterate pretty much that um, the club for ruling um, is very important to this case. In Klopfer, the U.S. Supreme Court held that leaving the case pending indefinitely without any means for the defendant to obtain a final resolution violates the speedy trial clause. And this is what's going on here. Um, um, the case is indefinitely removed from a calendar and the defendant has no way to put it back on except to plead guilty and give up his right to a trial. And, and that is simply unacceptable. And um, uh, I would point out that the Georgia Court of Appeals did agree with that reasoning also in Newman versus State. Uh, Counselor, I, I note that uh, in Mr. Nunez's case, uh, which was previously argued by your co-counsel and uh, is still uh, awaiting further argument, that there were uh, two and this is a part of the record in terms of what what, what the shucks indicate uh, on the trial level that uh, there were a couple of trial dates that were missed and commensurate called and fails in order for arrest. Uh, but in uh, Mr. Diaz Tomas's matter, there were seven different court dates that were set and uh, six called and fails and uh, orders for arrest. Uh, should there be any distinction uh, that this court should consider in terms of your position and that of your co-counsel in terms of the numbers of continuances and called and fails uh, relative to what a trial court should compel the prosecution to do in calling cases into an active status? Uh, Justice Morgan, oh, that's an excellent question. Uh, I would want to point out that I don't believe that the right to a jury trial or a right to a speedy trial is forfeited just by missing court. However, um, I understand the concern that um, uh, defendants miss court and they may not be punished for willfully missing court. I'm not saying my client ever willfully missed court, but hypothetically, if a defendant missed court, uh, there are other mechanisms for punishing that. Uh, for the actual missing court. First of all, um, if uh, whenever somebody misses court, the uh, punishment is not to take the case off the calendar and force them to plead guilty. But, uh, the punishment is indirect contempt of court, which I believe there is a court of appeals opinion about called State versus Damons. I'm not aware of a North Carolina Supreme Court opinion on that point, but you can hold somebody in indirect contempt of court every time they miss court, and eventually somebody will learn from their mistakes. Uh, and stop missing court. Uh, there's also a general statute, which is 15A 543, 
And it states that if you miss court for a misdemeanor, like a DUI or anything else, you can be punished by a class two misdemeanor, arguably possibly for every time you miss court. Uh, and there's also actually a specific statute for more egregious violators who, who run away from court on DUIs for more than two years, and that's 2028 A3, I believe. It might have been, well, subsection might have changed in, in the last couple of years. But it basically states that it's a class one misdemeanor um, to miss court for more than two years on a DUI. And I believe that provision also carries a license suspension. So the legislature does have mechanisms for punishing those people. However, taking the case off the calendar permanently is not the way to do it. Um, uh, it's criminal penalties. There is no punishment without having a trial or or some dispositive hearing in a district court. Um, but there is punishment available for actually missing court and creating those problems for a state. Uh, what would be the state's recourse when its case against a defendant is so severely compromised due to the passage of time? Uh, there were several years in each of these cases, um, and yet uh, how does a state safeguard its interests when years have passed potentially and those that would have availability are no longer as available and juxtaposing that for the trial court against a defendant who does have a right to a speedy trial. Uh, your honor, um, uh, I would argue again that the remedy would be contempt or uh, charging of a new offense. Unfortunately, if a state's case is compromised, um, um, basically, it's a legislative question on what punishment uh, should be inflicted, and they should simply state should petition the legislator to change the law and make the punishment for missing court more severe. But it's not a question for for the courts. Well, are, are you equating uh, the potential for indirect contempt with the prospect of having a matter to be uh, fully dismissed uh, without being on the merits if the state is so compromised that it can't present its case? I believe that um, simply because somebody missed court doesn't mean they're guilty. I understand that the case have, may have been compromised, but well, there is no procedural mechanism for actually um, defaulting a case for a state. A procedural mechanism is to punish somebody for missing court. Um, Mr. Mr. Lebdev, if I understand uh, a portion of Mr. Hyde's brief, and he, of course, is free to tell me that I have misunderstood it if I did so, uh, he suggests, I think, that your remedy here is to, at some point, make a motion for dismissal based on Sixth Amendment speedy trial grounds. Uh, why isn't that a sufficient remedy? Oh, that is not a sufficient remedy because, um, first of all, my client never requested that remedy, and second of all, dismissal. Sorry, your client never. I'm sorry, your client never what? Never requested a dismissal. First of all, and it's not before the court. And second of all, dismissal is considered to be a drastic and a disfavored remedy. If a lesser remedy can be exercised, uh, it will be. You know, everybody's best interest to exercise a lesser remedy. Well, I mean, hypothetically, the reason that the, the dismissal with leave was taken with respect to your client was uh, that he failed to appear. And we don't have any more in the record than that, I don't think, as to the circumstances surrounding the failure to appear. If I'm wrong about that, somebody can correct me there, too. Um, in the event that 
uh, your client had not failed to appear, uh, the state did have discretion as to when to call your case for trial. And if it delayed doing so to some appreciable extent, you're right at the your remedy at that point is a dismissal motion on speedy trial grounds. Your argument with us has been essentially we're back in the same posture that we would have been otherwise uh, once your client was, uh, you know, located and reappeared. If your remedy before was a Sixth Amendment dismissal motion, why is it not a Sixth Amendment dismissal motion now? Uh, I think uh, one thing we all got to remember is before we can actually hear the dismissal motion and get it put on the calendar, we, we need to have it back on the calendar. So, I mean, so is, your, is your argument then that recalendering is a precondition to making a Sixth Amendment dismissal motion? Uh, that is one of my arguments, Your Honor, and it well, is because. Why, why is that the case? I mean, the case is still there. It's not on the calendar. It's not in an active status. But what is it that would prevent you from filing a, a motion to dismiss on Sixth Amendment grounds? Because a Barker versus Wingo motion is very fact specific. There's a lot of factors and evidence that would need to be put on. It's not just based on a mere delay. Uh, I mean, no, the intent of a prosecutor would play a role, the circumstances of a defendant. It, we would literally need to present a lot of evidence in front of a trial judge, and it would have to be back. That sounds like an argument that we shouldn't be required to do it because it would be hard for me to prove that my client would prevail. Uh, is that essentially your reason for saying that the Sixth Amendment uh, motion isn't a sufficient remedy? Uh, I would point to your honors to Justin Newby, uh, Justin, uh, Chief Justice Newby, is the dissent in Courtney. And uh, that case states that the remedy for such violations is um, to be, pad, but pad, be put back on a trial calendar, not a substantive dismissal. And um, at this point, I, I do respectfully wish to uh, reserve remaining time for rebuttal. I do want this court to consider the alternative procedural remedies, such as mandamus and direct review of the district court order. Uh, however, I am lacking time and I would rather reserve the time for rebuttal. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. Thank you, Your Honor. With the court's indulgence, can I have just a moment? Sure. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, may it please the court, my name is Joe Hodge. I represent the state in this matter. Um, Justice Irvin, you touched on this briefly. I, I want to speak uh, just very quickly about sort of procedurally how this case is here. Um, the cases were combined for argument. Uh, the only issue that this 
court actually has to determine is whether the court of appeals erred in affirming the superior court's denial of the cert petition. That's the appeal of right based on the dissent in Diaz Tomas. Um, Mr. Nunez is here on the basis of the court of appeals grant of the cert petition, but before the court of appeals issued an opinion. Um, so everything in Nunez is up to our discretionary review. And the only question in Nunez is whether the superior court erred denying uh, the cert petition. So, so when you say that the only thing that we have to decide is the issue in Mr. Nunez's case arising from the dissent, you're saying in effect that everything else is here on discretionary review and we always have the right to dismiss something as, as improvidently allowed. Is that what you're telling us? The last part of that is absolutely correct, Your Honor. The, the only issue that's before this case is in Diaz Thomas. Diaz Thomas is the case that had the dissent. Okay. Court of Appeals. Nunez was moved. I'm sorry. You're right. You're right. I'm I'm, I'm reversed. I apologize. <laughs> no problem. But you're right with the rest of that. The only issue that this court actually has to decide that there's an appeal of right is based on the dissent in Diaz Thomas. The rest is here. But, 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 but once I've got my once I've got myself properly situated as to which case I'm talking about. Uh, the reason you say we don't have to decide it is because everything else is here on discretionary review of some sort. Yes, Your Honor, that's correct. The only possible remedy for a speedy trial violation is dismissal of the charges. That's State v. Spivey, uh, North Carolina Supreme Court case 357-114. The only possible remedy for a Sixth Amendment violation of the speedy trial right is dismissal of the charges. I believe the United States Supreme Court has said that as well. Um, both defendants in these cases were charged with traffic offenses. Both defendants failed to appear in court multiple times. Charges were dismissed with leave pursuant to 15A 932. Um, eventually, defendants were apprehended. They didn't um, turn themselves in. They had to be arrested. Court dates were scheduled. And the dis, uh, district attorney declined to reinstate charges. Um, both defendants filed motions asking the district court to compel the state to reinstate the charges. I think there's a little bit of confusion as to what exactly the defendant was asking for in his motion. Um, but what the district court understood him to be asking for, what the district court specifically refused to grant for the court, I'm looking at page 57 of the record in Diaz Thomas, for the court to reinstate the charges and mandate that the district attorney prosecute the defendant as requested would constitute an unauthorized and impermissible interference with the district attorney's performance of constitutional and statutory duties. So what the district court, I think reasonably based on what the motion was asking for, because it specifically asked for reinstatement and reinstatement under 15A 932 is in the discretion of the prosecutor. But the district court understood defendant to be asking for was that the court reinstate the charges, mandate that the district attorney prosecute the defendant. Two legal bases that the trial court relied on, the district court relied on in denying that request were ultimately the separation of powers, um, citing Camacho, and the statutory language, 15A932, and then ultimately the statutory language of 20. That's 24.1. I want to start about each one of those. Before we move into the, your, the more legal part of your argument, as just as a matter of practice, uh, 
it, it looks to me as if the difference between a dismissal under 15A931 and a dismissal with leave under uh, 15A932 is that the latter keeps the charge pending and tolls the money of the statute of limitations. Is that, really, is that really the difference between the two? The one is, an, is a final dismissal. The other keeps the charge pending. That's correct. Yes. And, and, serves, and serves to toll the running of the statute of limitations. I believe that's correct. I think that's under this court's recent decision coordinating. I think that's right. The, the, the argument that, that both Mr. Boomer Dieters and Mr. Lebedev have made is, in essence, that by refusing to reinstate the charge, that that effectively leaves a defendant subject to criminal prosecution without any ability on the part of the defendant to do anything that brings that condition to an end. That's right. I believe that's right, Your Honor. In, uh, is, is, in your view, is that a fair description of where the defendant finds himself uh, in the event that there's been a dismissal with leave taken and the uh, prosecutor elects not to reinstate the charge? I, I believe that's correct. And so I would just advert to the questions you were asking, um, Mr. Lebedev. I don't well, and, and I guess my, my but I have one more question before we get to that, and then I will I really do want to hear your answer to it, but I'm going to interrupt you just a second. Uh, what purpose is served uh, by prosecutor's decision not to reinstate once a defendant has been found and is available to be prosecuted? I, I'm not sure subjectively what uh, individual prosecutors might answer. Give me, give me give me some examples of things you've you've been around the system a good while and uh, I know I, one possible answer could be I mean it serves the function of of calendaring. I mean it keeps a case off the docket until the state is ready to pursue the prosecution. Um, I think defendants are relying on the on the proposition that it is sort of a, a, a calendaring device. So so I imagine one potential answer would be it's a way of of keeping the dockets clean and moving along, particularly for a defendant. Remember, this only applies for a defendant who's who's missed a court date, right, a defendant right. who's failed to appear. Well, and once we once we once we found the defendant, right. uh, what purpose does not resuming the normal calendaring process serve? I, I, I'm afraid I don't have a good answer for you, except that the legislature has authorized the district attorney in its discretion to keep them in, in VL status and move them into to reinstituting those charges when when the state is ready to proceed. But in terms of yeah. why, in terms of why the state wouldn't move them immediately back on the active calendar, I'm afraid I don't have a good answer for you. Now you were going to answer the question that I asked Mr. Lebedev about the Sixth Amendment, and please do that because I would like oh. you to. Yeah, I, I think the question you were asking him is why isn't a motion to dismiss these charges sufficient? And and he gave several answers to that. First, he said his client never requested that. Of course, that's not an answer to the question of why it wouldn't be sufficient. It's true his client never requested dismissal. But the answer to that the question there is why not? Um, he said dismissal is a drastic remedy. I mean that that's true. Dismissal is a drastic remedy. Violation of the defendant's right to a speedy trial is a serious violation. And I think once a defendant has established a violation of his right to a speedy trial, 
as this court and the United States Supreme Court has said, dismissal is the only possible remedy. And then finally, the suggestion that, well, Barker v. Wingo, which is subsequent to Klopfer and sets out the different interests at stake in determining whether a speedy trial violation has occurred, requires a factual presentation. That's true. A defendant put in VL status indefinitely, who has been arrested, who's been found, apprehended, right, and comes back to court. If you have a situation, for whatever reason, the district attorney refuses to reinstate these charges, that defendant needs to start filing a motion to dismiss right away. He needs to start asserting his right, his demand for a speedy trial, not because the trial court has the authority to, to order the state to prosecute. It absolutely does not. But because only by asserting that right, as soon as he is available, does he start that clock for a speedy trial violation, at the end of which, should a speedy trial violation be shown, the trial court has to dismiss the charges. One of the, one of the things that I thought I heard Mr. Lebedev say during his and my discussion of this issue was that you couldn't file a speedy trial motion and have it heard unless the prosecutor reinstated the charge uh, and put it back on the active calendar. What what comment, if any, do you have to make about that, assuming that I understood him correctly? I believe he said that, Your Honor. I don't see any support for that in law, and I don't think that would be correct if the defendant were to try, uh, were to file a motion to dismiss and he couldn't get a ruling on that. His remedy on that is mandamus. I don't think there's any doubt that a defendant is entitled to a ruling on his motion. There's some suggestion in one of these cases that he tried to file, I think it's Nunez, he filed a motion to dismiss on the basis of a um, uh, violation of the statute of limitations under Turner. Turner was ultimately overruled, so there's no merit to that particular motion. But the suggestion was um, he couldn't get a ruling on that motion to dismiss because the case was not on the calendar. The defendant is entitled to a ruling on his motion. So, so your the state's position is that in the event that a defendant who finds that a defendant who finds himself in the position of Mr. Nunez, Mr. Diaz, Tomas, would be entitled to file a motion to dismiss for uh, on speedy trial grounds and have a decision on the merits with respect to that issue, regardless of whether the prosecutor reinstated the charge. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. It, because, I mean, as, as your honors pointed out, and I think uh, defendants pointed out, this, this doesn't, it, it takes the case off the calendar, but all of the, the process retains its validity, right? I mean, that's, that's what it says in the statute, and the cases have interpreted that dismissal with leave, uh, non-appearance results in removal of the case from the docket, but all outstanding process retains its validity, all necessary actions to apprehend the defendant, investigate the case, or otherwise further the prosecution may be taken. I mean, I, if the state can keep working on this, I think the defendant can as well. There's no basis to suggest that just because it's not immediately on the calendar, the defendant can't file a dispositive motion. He's entitled to a ruling on that motion. Um, so if I'm understanding you correctly, and tell me if I'm, I'm missing the point here, that it's kind of a misnomer to call this a dismissal if actually the charges are still pending. Is that accurate? I think that's true, Your Honor, and I think one of the problems we're having here is that the, the language is a little bit more confusing than it is clarifying. Um, it's important to point out in Klopfer, what happened in Klopfer was prior to 158, um, 931 and 932, there was a procedure in North Carolina whereby the state could take a null pros, null prosequi with leave. Um, essentially, what that allowed the state to do was to 
to dismiss the case to choose not to prosecute. So the charges are still pending, even though there was no um, reason to do that. The, the defendant in Clockford did not fail to appear. The defendant in Clockford was, a, I think he had been tried and there was a mistrial. He showed up to court. He wanted to proceed. And the, the state just said, well, we're, we're not going to do that at this point. And what the U.S. Supreme Court held was uh, where the prosecutor was permitted to take an old prosecutor would leave an unjustified postponement that that was a violation of the defendant's rights. But in Klopfer itself, it specifically declined to address the situation of the defendant who failed to appear. Obviously, a defendant who fails to appear in court can't complain about a postponement of his trial. It didn't happen because he wasn't there. So Klopfer did not- can, can, can a defendant who fails to appear and then is reapprehended so that his failure to appear has come to an end, can he at that point then legitimately complain about a failure to uh, put his case on for trial? Yes, I, I would agree mis with Mr. Levitt. I, I don't think a mere failure to appear uh, waives entirely a defendant's right to a speedy trial. Now, it's made it more difficult to this, for the state to prosecute. And you might, you can imagine a situation where the state's interest is witnesses have, have died or disappeared, the evidence has, has vanished. I mean, that's a problem. But once the defendant is apprehended, he doesn't forfeit his right to a speedy trial. That's why I say he should start filing a motion to dismiss right away. Is, is the, you know, if you take Mr. Nunez or Mr. Diaz Tomas as of the date upon which they were reapprehended and therefore reappeared, are they any different than the position that Dr. Klopfer occupied uh, at the time he started complaining about a null process with leave? In a way, only because under the under the more recent case under Barker, right? One of the factors is that you consider the reason for the delay. And I think for a defendant who failed to appear, it's going to be easier for the state to justify moving the case out further from when the original charges were instituted. Because because unlike the defendant in Clockford, unlike a defendant who showed up for every court date, part of the reason for the delay in a situation where the defendant failed to appear, it, it's the defendant's own fault. But aside from that factor, aside from the considerations owing to the defendant's failure to appear, I, I think you're right, Your Honor, those defendants would be in a similar situation. That's why I say that defendant, as soon as he is apprehended, if he wants to get the charges disposed of, he needs to start demanding that the charges be dismissed for violation of his right to a speedy trial. I, I would point just to make sure I understand what you're saying, um, you said the, the failure to appear doesn't waive the right to a trial, but the fact that he's failed to appear might explain, might be relevant under the Barker factors on a speedy trial motion, but you're not saying, so the state can continue to delay, but you're not saying that ultimately um, the state, if the defendant brings a speedy trial motion, that the state can delay forever. That's correct, Your Honor. I, I do not believe the state can delay forever. <laughs> no, that, that, that would be a problem. I mean, that's why I say it, it, it would be a little bit of a, a, a subterfuge or an unfairness for the state to say, well, I mean, you didn't show up, so we're just going to kick it out at our leisure and we'll get to it when we get to it. No, I, I don't think the state can do that. Now, I mean. What if the, what if the state says we're going to kick it out forever unless you plead guilty? Right. So. There's the allegations that are made in the motion to reinstate the charges that that's what's going on here. 
Um, I'm, it's significant, I think, that there were no factual findings made about those allegations. I mean, what the, the trial court did is stopped with um, what the statutes and what the Constitution allows, which is the district attorney has the discretion to reinstate the charges or not. And sort of the reason for that at this point, it doesn't really matter. But, but yes, there are those allegations that, that there was sort of a compulsion or a, a strong arming tactic being used here. I, I would point out that um, 15A932 does seem to condone that tactic to some extent because it does provide one avenue for a defendant to circumvent the prosecutor's refusal to reinstate the charges. And that is um, in 15A932D1. Now, this applies to only certain charges, and I'm, I can't say for sure that it applies to all the charges in these cases, but if the proceeding was dismissed pursuant to subdivision... I, I, checked, I checked that point, Mr. Hyde, and I don't think it does. It it, it starts about starts off the first paragraph is in, in the relevant statute talks about class three misdemeanors and infractions. I think it may cover some of the traffic violations here, but not all of them. But the point I'm trying to make is the legislature has provided an avenue to circumvent the prosecutor's discretion here. There is a narrow avenue provided by the statute itself that says um, in that narrow class of cases, when the defendant fails to appear and the case was dismissed with leave and the defendant tenders to the court a waiver, that is a waiver of trial, uh, an admission of responsibility, and payment in full with fines, costs, and fees, the clerk shall accept said waiver and payment without the need for a written reinstatement. In other words, if the defendant shows up and pleads guilty, he can, he, he can move ahead without forcing a reinstatement. Now, you can argue, I, I don't see defendants arguing that that provision is unconstitutional. There's certainly this allegation that a coerced guilty plea um, would not be valid, but that hasn't happened yet. And as this court clarified in, in Simeon. Well, I, I'm sorry to keep interrupting you, Mr. Hyde, but you said it hadn't happened yet. What, what if a defendant is unwilling to make what he or she perceives as a coerced guilty plea? And then their remedy is the motion to dismiss for Sixth Amendment purposes if the case is not brought on for trial within whatever time Barker versus Wingo would suggest is, is uh, necessary. That's it, Your Honor. Well, that, there's actually two possibilities here. Yes, in terms of the criminal charges, he needs to start seeking dismissal for a speedy trial violation because if the state refuses to prosecute, and he refuses to comply with this condition, alleging that it forces an unconstitutionality. Right. I, I think the way to investigate into the cause of the delay in that case would be a motion to dismiss for a speedy trial violation. Isn't that, isn't that enough to make Klopfer applicable here, despite, as you correctly note, there's a factual difference procedurally in that in Klopfer, the defendant had not failed to appear as opposed to the two cases here. But doesn't Klopfer become relevant and hence applicable if there is a determination by a prosecution that a matter is not going to be reinstated actively unless there is a guilty plea? I think Klopfer is relevant to the extent that it makes the Sixth Amendment uh, speedy trial guarantee relevant here. But this court held in Simeon v. Hardin that these statutes giving the, the district attorney uh, calendaring authority are not facially unconstitutional. It, it depends. I, I'm not sure exactly what your honor means applicable. I, I don't agree with the defendant that Klopfer is identical to this situation. And I don't think 
caught for necessarily, well, I'll say this, it absolutely does not support the suggestion that the defendant is entitled to a reinstatement of charges on demand. As this court and the United States Supreme Court has said again and again, the remedy for a Sixth Amendment violation is dismissal of the charges. But is Crawford relevant to the extent that if a prosecution uh, says that, if a prosecutor says that a matter is not going to be taken out of voluntary leave status unless a defendant pleads guilty, and if a defendant is not willing to plead guilty, then there can be this criminal charge held over the defendant for an indeterminate amount of time, which the U.S. Supreme Court goes on to say can therefore hold the defendant in an indefinite posture of suspension from the standpoint of reputation and opportunities and so forth. Isn't that where Clawford does have applicability here? Yes, it's implicated. But I think the, the speedy trial sort of inquiry is, is directed more by the subsequent case of Barker v. Wingo. There's no suggestion that the Sixth Amendment speedy trial right is not relevant here. But, but it, it looks like what happened in Klopfer is in a situation where the defendant has not failed to appear, the mere dismissal with leave, the null pros um, for, for an un, unjustified postponement, it said that that procedure was itself unconstitutional. So Klopfer is not relevant insofar as there's a, there's a suggestion that these statutes that grant the district attorney the discretion to reinstate or not to reinstate charges are, un, are, are unconstitutional. This court has held they're not unconstitutional. So I'm not sure if I parsed that correctly. Klopfer applies insofar as the Sixth Amendment right to speedy trial is implicated. It does not mean that what happened here has already violated the defendant's rights. Does, does Klopfer... I'm sorry, Justice Servant. And I apologize, Justice Morgan. Does Klopfer have any bearing upon the validity of the subsequent motion to dismiss for a violation of the speedy trial? No. The, the correct case for determining that would be Barker v. Wingo for, for two reasons. First of all, right, because Klopfer I didn't... I, I, you know, maybe I misspoke. I didn't think, I didn't mean to say what's determinative. Are the, are, the, are the factors upon which Klopfer rested relevant to a subsequent uh, dismissal motion brought pursuant to Barker? Yes, insofar as the state is not permitted to take an unjustified postponement indefinitely, yes. Okay, and I apologize, Justice Klopfer is not applicable insofar as the Speedy Trial Act is concerned, but I believe I hear you saying, Mr. Hyde, that Klopfer is applicable insofar as the state cannot indefinitely hold open a criminal charge and refuse to bring it into an active posture when a defendant wants to have it actively uh, put in a position where it is on an, a calendar at some point. That's right. That's right. The remedy for a Sixth Amendment violation is dismissal of the charges. Nothing in Klopfer would support the proposition that the trial court has to order the state to reinstate these charges. It goes back to what the defendant asked for in his motion. He was asking for reinstatement. And what the district court interpreted that request to be, and reasonably enough, for the court to reinstate the charges and mandate that the district attorney prosecute the defendant as requested by defendant in this motion. 
defendant was asking the trial court to activate the prosecutorial responsibility of the state. There's very good reason, practically and historically, why you don't want the judiciary telling the state who to prosecute, right? So, as but as a practical matter, there's if the charges, as I understand your argument, were not actually dismissed, they're just kind of um, inactivated, not on the calendar. What's to reinstate? You're just asking it to be put back on the calendar. Right? Well, that's <laughs> this is where I say that the terminology is a little slippery. Because, yeah, it does, it does seem to be that the, the voluntary leave procedure is one that merely moves it from one calendar off of the calendar. But it is relevant that the statutes put that discretion exclusively in the district attorney. And this court, this court held in Simeon that those statutes are not unconstitutional. Now, if the defendant had filed a motion merely asking for a hearing, right, I want this case to be heard on a particular date, I'm here, I'm available, I want this restored to the calendar, I don't see any reason why the district court couldn't do that, couldn't allow that. But what the district court understood defendant to be asking for was to mandate the district attorney prosecute the defendant. I'm, I'm sorry. Let me ask you, let me ask you this maybe a different way that it, as I understand the way that you've described this procedure that's been in, in kind of in, invoked here, um, is there's not really a practical difference between um, the dismissal without leave here and the null pros and Klopfer, is there? If the charges are still pending and they're just hanging around there, not being on the calendar, unless the prosecutor decides to activate them, is there? The, there's not really a practical difference, is there? The difference is that 932 specifically is uh, the state is permitted to VL the charges only if the defendant fails to appear, and that's not what happened in Klopfer. But practically, the same effect is reached, right? The charges are removed from the calendar or just hanging out. If the, if the defendant fails to appear, okay, yeah, that's that's what I was wondering. And but it appears that the defendants in this case um, have operated on the understanding that dismissal meant dismissal, and that there wasn't anything pending for them to move to dismiss. Um, but I understand you're saying that actually they have been pending all along, and they should be moving to dismiss for speedy trial violations. Uh, that's correct. And and if the defendant in his motion to reinstate was asking just for a hearing, uh, he didn't make that clear enough for the district court to understand it. The district court reasonably understood those requests to be to mandate the district attorney to prosecute. And the, the district court said, I can't do that because the separation of powers, Camacho, right, says that the duty to prosecute is with the district attorney and it's not something that can be mandated. It's not a province that may be invaded by the judiciary. Well, let me, but I, as I understood Mr. Um, Wilmer Dieters to argue that calendaring is a different matter and that the trial court can put a matter on the calendar without invading the district attorney's prosecutorial discretion. Do you agree with that? Yes, and, and this I think is the best argument the defendants have here is that really they were just asking for this to be put on the calendar. It does require a little bit of a, a Squinting your eyes and blurring at what uh, what he was asking for in his motion. That's not what the district court understood him to be asking for. That that's significant because both defendants want to say, well, the district court erred by failing to put my case back on the calendar. That's not what he asked for, right? <laughs> but the district court understood him to be asking for is to mandate that the district attorney prosecute the defendant. 
Now, when, when, you, when, you, when you, you've used that term several times, and again, as you've said, you know, semantics affect what we do here. When, you, when you're using the term prosecute in this argument, uh, what do you mean? What specific functions are you talking about or what is encompassed within your definition of prosecute as you've been using it? Right. Um, I, I think uh, what I mean by prosecution is what is meant in the Constitution and statutes. The, the Constitution and statutes assign to the district attorney the responsibility of prosecuting all criminal actions on behalf of the state. And what that means. Okay, what does that mean? If we, you know, we're going to back up to that definition, what is that definition? Um, the speedy trial guarantee is, is to, to, to investigate the charges, to bring the charges, to present its evidence, and to attempt uh, to obtain a conviction on those charges. I, what I have in mind when I'm talking about prosecuting is, is putting the defendant on trial, calling the case for trial, uh, well, district court, you're not going to have a jury, but a presentation of the state's evidence and and an argument made for why the defendant should be found guilty. That's that's the essence of the prosecution. So so is your understanding of the effect of a dismissal with leave uh, in the reinstatement process simply that in order to bring the case actively to trial, call witnesses, impanel the jury, you know. Uh, put the defendant in jeopardy before a judge in the district court. Uh, what we're talking, what, what reinstatement is talking about is actually bringing the case to a contested trial at which jeopardy attaches. I'm not sure that that's what reinstatement means necessarily. I mean, this is, we really do get into the semantics here, right? Because the statutes give the prosecutor that discretion either to reinstate or not to reinstate the charges. There's case law that says it's a, a calendaring device, and I think it's true that it charges that are in a VL status are not on the calendar. But we get into what is it permissible for the trial court to do or to order, and what is not permissible for the trial court to do or to order. Can the defendant ask for a hearing? Absolutely. Can the trial court order a hearing, have a status conference? Sure. Can the, can the court order the state to prosecute the defendant? To, to put him in jeopardy and present its evidence. That is what the district court thought the defendant was asking for, and that is what the district court said I, I may not do. And can, 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 the, can the court order the district attorney to put the case on a calendar? I think the trial court can put the case on the calendar itself, but right. I think if the, if the district court were to order the state to do that, you, you bump up against the prohibition in Camacho. Um, this court said the courts of this state must at the very least make every possible effort to avoid unnecessarily interfering with the district attorney in the, in the performance of their duties. The performance of their duties includes both constitutional and statutory duties, and essence and semantics aside, 15A-932 says that reinstatement is essentially a duty of the prosecution. The trial, the trial court has the inherent authority to make sure that a case is not falling between the cracks by placing a matter on an administrative calendar or even a criminal calendar. But as I think I'm hearing you saying, does not have the ability to place a matter on a trial calendar 
in terms of having it to be activated to go forward for an active prosecution. Do I understand you correctly, Mr. I'm not, I'm not sure that Simeon makes that distinction between what calendar it is. Simeon says the, the trial court retains inherent authority over the calendar. So I think the trial court could put the case on whatever calendar it wanted to, but, but that's not really the problem we're dealing with here. The problem is whether the trial court can order the state to, to uh, in this case, reinstitute the charges, which is a, a responsibility that the Constitution and statute gives to the prosecution alone. I think the way to, to get around this, right, the defendant can ask the trial court to put it on the calendar. But in terms of whether the district court here erred in denying the defendant's request to order the state to do something that the state has been given the responsibility for by statute, there's no, there's no demonstration that that was error. The district court understood defendant to be asking for an order to compel the state to prosecute, and the trial court said, I can't do that. And so, 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 could, so could a version of Justice Morgan's question, could, could the trial court, is the line then the trial court could order that a case be put on a calendar, but the trial court cannot order the state to call it for trial? I think that's correct, Your Honor. I think that's right. Um, the, the other thing to point out just very quickly, I mean, Simeon is a, is a civil case, and the first section of that opinion explains why the civil proceeding is a better vehicle for this kind of uh, allegation, right? It gives, it gives three distinct reasons. It says, first of all, that the um, his allegations that the district attorney is abusing his calendar authority is collateral to the underlying criminal charges. Um, and the issues which normally arise during a criminal prosecution. Uh, the second thing is that, and this is interesting, it cites Constitution Article 4, Section 13 for the proposition that the people of the state, rather than the district attorney, are parties in the criminal action. That the proper uh, defendant in an allegation that the district attorney is abusing his calendaring authority is the district attorney, not the people of North Carolina who are represented by the district attorney in the criminal case. And finally, the third reason, the remedy that the, this is the important one, the remedy that the defendant is asking for some kind of injunctive relief is a civil, not a criminal remedy. The remedy for a violation of, of calendaring authority, where you're telling the district attorney not to do it this way or to do it differently, is a civil remedy. In a criminal case, the only possible remedy for violation of the defendant's Sixth Amendment right to a speedy trial is dismissal of the charges. A defendant in a criminal case cannot compel the state to reinstate the charges or to prosecute him, to put him in jeopardy, to put on its evidence, to attempt to achieve a conviction. The sort of injunctive relief that the defendant is asking for here is essentially a civil remedy. He's free to file a civil lawsuit if he thinks that the, the prosecutor is abusing his calendaring authority to coerce a guilty plea, which incidentally is identical to the allegations um, made in Simeon. He can do what this court allowed the plaintiffs and Simeon to do, which is to bring a civil lawsuit. But in terms of obtaining from the district court an order that the, the state do something that the statutes in the Constitution give the state the discretion to do or not to do, that's a separation of powers problem. So, so I, I just want to follow up. Um, it, 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 
I'm 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 concerned about trying to understand your argument on the in the first case in Nunez where where the distinction was made between calendaring and prosecuting and and it, I, I think surely you would agree that the the trial court the trial court has the power for example to deny a state's motion for a continuance right yes and so that would be an example of a trial court saying this case is you know I'm going to put this on the calendar and what you're saying is um what the trial judge doesn't have the authority to do is to require the prosecutor to then go to trial that's right okay so then i want to ask you what what you make of the impact of um the the general statutes that um apply particularly here um 20-24.1 b1 that says that um, a defendant must be afforded an opportunity for a trial or a hearing within a reasonable time. D are you saying that the only way to vindicate that statutory provision is to bring a speedy trial act claim? I don't think that's the only way, but that's certainly one way. I think the argument is made in the state's brief, and I'll reassert that here. I think that's essentially a speedy trial provision. But but I would like to point out, I believe I heard Mr. Woomer Dieter say that um, 20 24.1 specifically says that the trial court has the authority to set the charges on the calendar. That's not what 20-24.1 says at all. What 20-24.1b1 says is the defendant must be afforded an opportunity for a trial or a hearing within a reasonable time, and upon motion, the court must order that a hearing or trial be heard within a reasonable time. That the trial court can put a case on the calendar, that it can tell the state, I'm denying a continuance, you've got to put up or shut up, there's no dispute about that. But the question is whether that statutory provision is going to be read sort of consistently or inconsistently with the discretion that's afforded to prosecutors by 15A-932. My, my question is really more of a procedural one. <laughs> what is the state's contention um, as to how that a defendant in those circumstances can assert that statutory right. The way he asserts that is by demanding a hearing, status hearing, have the trial court put the case back on the calendar, and ultimately, if the district attorney refuses to prosecute, to start making a motion to dismiss for a speedy trial violation. That's the way that that statutory guarantee is effectuated. Thank you. The only remedy for a Sixth Amendment violation is dismissal of the charges. If the defendant's rights have been violated, whether it's speedy trial rights or due process rights, 15A954, I think, allows a defendant to move for a dismissal on the basis of a violation of his constitutional rights, even beyond uh, his right to a speedy trial. The remedy is dismissal. Remedy is not for the trial court to usurp the prosecutor's role in reinstating or not reinstating these charges. Now, we can call it a calendaring device. We can call it a same thing as a null pros, the legislature in 15A-932 gave that power to the prosecution, and it provided only a narrow avenue to circumvent that discretion in 15A-932-D1. Now, even if D1 doesn't apply to these particular charges, I take that to mean the legislature has sort of anticipated this problem, and it's given certain defendants at least a way to bypass the prosecutor's refusal to reinstate. But the statutes don't otherwise allow for that. So unless there's some showing that this whole statutory scheme is unconstitutional, and I don't see defendant making that argument, 
the district court necessarily did not err in denying motion, which it understood to be a request to mandate district attorney prosecute the defendant. Just real quickly in terms of Nunez, um, to mix up the cases for a minute, the Court of Appeals, uh, in the, the opinion in Diaz Thomas, said even assuming arguendo that the district court's denial of defendant's motion to reinstate was erroneous, the Superior Court was not obligated to grant certiorari to review it. That necessarily follows from the dis discretionary power of a reviewing court. Remember, this was an interlocutory order by the district court. The Superior Court was justified in refusing to review it on that basis alone. Generally, there is not review allowed of interlocutory orders in a criminal case. It may be that the district court was wrong, but the Superior Court was entitled to wait until a final judgment had been entered in the district court before it chose to review the matter. And again, I hate to keep beating a dead horse if I'm doing it, but uh, your colleagues seem to argue, in effect, there's never a final judgment in this situation. Therefore, they have nothing to appeal from, if I understand their briefs. What, what, what's your, you know, how to... What's the final judgment that they have a right to appeal from if the state refuses to reinstate the prosecution and never calls the case for trial? The remedy for trial, the denial of a motion for speedy trial is not necessarily a final judgment either. I'm sorry, say that one more time. I said it, I, I don't think the final the denial of a motion to dismiss based on speedy trial speedy trial grounds is a uh, final judgment either. I believe that's correct, but. The way that the defendant would assert his right to a speedy trial is by making a motion to dismiss. And I guess at some point it becomes unreasonable for the state to kick this out further and further. Well, but let's, let's, say, let's say hypothetically, and I'm, I'm just making up facts now. Um, let's say that the state, the defendant waits two years. State doesn't do anything. Moves to dismiss, gets a hearing on its dismissal motion. The dismissal motion is denied. There's no final judgment, no way to get relief, no way to get review of it, right? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's that's right. And whether to allow review of that or not is in the discretion of the Superior Court. In order for the, the defendant to get further review of that, he would have to show there had been some abuse of discretion by the Superior Court. And I don't see that the defendant has shown that here. But but you're right, Your Honor, in terms of assimilating it with my, uh, my other example, that also would be an interlocutory order. And, and this court's case law is fairly clear that interlocutory orders in criminal cases generally are not reviewed until the entry of a final judgment. Um, the state, if there are no further questions, the state would respectfully request that this court affirm the decision of the Court of Appeals in Diaz Thomas and find the rest of the issues uh, discretionary review is improvidently allowed. Thank you, counsel. Uh, we'll hear rebuttal. Uh, I believe it was, um, I believe it was Justice Irvin who asked Mr. Hyde, why would the state keep a case in BL status after uh, a defendant has been located? And Mr. Hyde candidly responded that he didn't have a good answer for that question. But I think we know what the answer is. The reason the state is doing this is because is to extract a guilty plea out of a defendant who did not appear, uh, who, who failed to appear earlier in the criminal process. Um, 
by virtue of the the statute which suspends a defend a defendant's license when he fails to appear automatically this creates a pressure on the defendant to plead guilty um and uh, if he ever if he want, wants to have any hope of driving legally in the state again um and so what we're what's at stake here is 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 a principle that's I think foundational to our entire legal tradition, which is that you get your day in court. You're entitled to your day in court. And what the state, what the allegations in the motion here are, are that uh, the only date in, in court that the state is offering in the in the circumstances or under these circumstances is a day for Mr. Nunez to plead guilty. And I think that is something that this court should resist. Um, now, the state spoke, uh, we went through this whole, uh, uh, I would say there's a, the state's position seems to be that the, the remedy, the only remedy here is a speedy trial dismissal motion or a civil lawsuit. Um, and it relies on, you know, this, um, you know, it's relying on, uh, it, it's saying that, that Klopfer doesn't really, um, that, that the only remedy for a speedy trial violation is dismissal. And I think Klopfer, uh, that, that's not really what Klopfer establishes. It, it, what, it, what it held was that the criminal procedure, um, the, um, I, and I'm going to mispronounce it, the, the Nole Pross criminal procedure, um, using that, uh, clearly denies, uh, clearly denied Klopp for the right to a speedy trial, which they which was guaranteed to him by the Sixth Amendment. Um, and so there is some, despite, I, I think there is another species of Sixth Amendment violation here. But at the end of the day, that's kind of academic because we also have the statutory right um, for the case to be put on um, for a hearing or a trial. Um, so regardless of whether, you know, the, the, the Sixth Amendment, the only remedy for a Sixth Amendment violation is a speedy trial, I'm sorry, is dismissal or reinstatement of the charges or recalendering of the charges. Um, you know, we still have the statutory right under 20-24.1. Um, and I'm not going to quote the statute again at you, but um, it, it provides the defendant uh, upon his motion to have his case put back on the calendar and put on for a hearing or a trial. Uh, so there's a statutory right that's independent of the Sixth Amendment right to a speedy trial. And then also, of course, we have the due process violation that was alleged below, um, where the defendant, uh, where it was alleged that the state's position coerces the defendant into pleading guilty, unconstitutionally extracts a guilty plea from, from him. Um, and so, you know, regardless of this, you know, how this court decides to, re to resolve this, this issue of whether uh, Klopfer um, provides for a right to, to, to recalendering, or if a Sixth Amendment violation can only result in dismissal, there's still this outstanding statutory right and, a stat and an outstanding due process right that I don't think the state addresses. Um, I think it's also important um, to uh, reiterate the allegations that were made in the motion, which is that this is a practice uh, that that occurred. That, that this is common practice throughout Wake County. 
and the state was off has had multiple opportunities to deny uh, this allegation and never has. Um, so, you know, to I would say to avoid ruling on the merits in this case, given those allegations, would be very unfortunate. Um, again, I, I think uh, the, the state is relying on kind of a, on hair splitting here when we what we're faced with is a situation where defendants are being told you'll never get your day in court unless you plead guilty and you'll never drive unless you unless you plead guilty um and so i i think this court should uh intervene uh it should hold that the superior court abused its discretion under the circumstances of this case and um and uh and put this practice to rest so uh, uh, let me ask you a quick question. As I understand the argument from the state, um, the, the the motion that was filed by the defendants here didn't specifically ask for the case to be put back on the calendar, but it asked for the charges to be reinstated. And that the difference is that the um, asking for the charges to be reinstated was asking the court to order the DA to prosecute, which is a discretionary function that asking the trial court to put it on the calendar is a shared function and that you could ask for the case to be put back on the calendar. Uh, does that seem to provide an avenue that the defendants could avail themselves of here? I, I think the defendant, I mean, the defendant cited Simeon, he cited Klopfer, he cited the stat, he cited 22-24.1B1. So, and, 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 you know, putting aside the speedy trial issue, um, I think between Simeon and the statute, those cases uh, establish that there's a due process and a statutory right to have your case move forward, to proceed towards trial. And the, the distinction between, or, or I'm sorry, to, to, to find that the defendant um, fail, you know, this, or to not review, um, for the Superior Court not to review the practices uh, or, or what the state did here, or at least what, what was alleged the state did here um, on those grounds um, kind of misses the point. Um, you know, the, the statute gives the defendant a right to ask for, to, to essentially demand a hearing or a trial um, within, re when he, um, within a reasonable time of his reappearance. And of course, this court has held that, the, that it's unconstitutional for a district attorney to uh, apply uh, its discretionary authority over the calendar to coerce guilty pleas um, out of the uh, out of defendants. So um, I, I don't feel like there is a misunderstanding here, or that there is a failure to plead. Um, you know the the proper remedy or uh, or anything of that nature. I think the court knew um, what was being asked, and it simply uh, misapplied the relevant uh, authority. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Your time has expired. We'll hear uh, further rebuttal. Mr. Lebedev, you're muted. I apologize, may I please, of course? Uh, Mr. Hyde, in his argument, first of all, argued the separation of powers. However, I, the big flaw with that argument is that separation of powers does not mean that the powers cannot 
concurrent, be concurrent or overlapping. And that's exactly what the singing on versus Hardin case stated, that uh, the, the prosecutor and the courts do have overlapping calendar authority. And despite the um, defendant asking for reinstatement and his motion from the whole totality of the motion, it's kind of obvious what, what he wanted to is to be placed back on the calendar. Um, reading it otherwise simply does not make much sense. The next point that Mr. Hyde made was that uh, state versus Spivey is the only remedy for a violation of the Sixth Amendment. And a counterpoint to that is that the Klopfer decision attacks a procedure. It attacks um, whoever cases can be indefinitely taken off the calendar. While Barker versus Wingo focuses more on the substance and what um, happened factually, and they are not mutually exclusive concepts. Um, um, this court should exercise, uh, should read. Well, Mr. Mr. Lebedev, if you look at Klopfer, Klopfer was an appeal from an order by the trial court allowing the prosecutor to take a null process leave. Right. It was, Your Honor. And so, basically, in that instance, we had an appeal from a specific order that authorized a specific procedure. Right? That is correct, Your Honor. Here we have uh, something a little different than that, don't we? And the distinction here would be that here there is no appeal of right. It's, uh, it would be an alternative mechanism such as certiorari or mandamus um, to provide relief. Please, please um, proceed. I did not understand, Your Honor. I said, please proceed. I, 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 you've answered my question. Thank you. Yes. Um, also, Mr. Hyde uh, argued that there's no factual findings in the district court order, which undermines the case. However, there's really no need for more factual findings. Um, um, it's evident from a record that the case was placed in VL status in the defendant in this court. Um, um, the prosecutor declined to reinstate and, um, uh, well, the, the defendant later demanded reinstatement and the prosecutor and, um, the court both said no, and the sufficient time elapsed. And now even more time has elapsed. And it's pretty clear that my client at this point is at the very minimum entitled to have his case placed back on the calendar. Um, so the case can proceed consistently with 15A952G. We're not asking for this court to say um, um the state has to try the case tomorrow. All we're asking for is that it be placed back on the calendar so the procedure for definite continuances be observed. Uh, the trial court judge can say, um, well, well, the state needs a little more time, two more weeks to try. And that will be completely within the state's and the court's discretion at that point in time. What they cannot do is keep the case on a dead docket. And I would point this court uh, to the court of, uh, Georgia Court of Appeals opinion in Newman, which pretty much agrees with our point that uh, the district court order was wrong, but it kept the case on sort of a dead docket. Um, lastly, uh, I do want to point out that um, 1589. Let me interrupt just a second. Are you asking or saying that uh, uh, the defendant's reappearance, they somehow jumped to the front of the 
DUI charge cases or uh, would, I mean, in terms of putting them in the queue, I mean, you're, you're saying, well, we don't want to trial next week or two weeks. Uh, I don't know what the backlog is in Wake County with DUI. Do you know what that is? I mean, are we talking a year, two years? Uh, I would say there is a backlog, Your Honor. Um, it's not unusual to wait over a year to have a DUI case tried, but it varies. It depends on which trooper is involved, where the trooper is located, how many arrests the trooper made. And I, I do understand those points that if it's put back on the calendar and there's some sort of unavailability of a trooper, uh, the district court judge will still have some discretion to play around with um, trial. May I proceed? Sure. Uh, Mr. Hyde did argue that 15A932 gives all the power to reinstate or recalendar a case of a prosecution. I don't believe that is the case. Uh, we should not interpret 15A932 inconsistent with Klopfer, inconsistent with Simeon, and we have case law directly on point, which states that uh, the calendar and authority is shared. If, um, um, if a prosecutor does not timely reinstate a case of a Courts can step in and do that. They can go back and put the case back on the calendar when the prosecutor failed to do so. Um, as far as my fa very final point, I did attach a case uh, called Hicks versus Recorders Court of uh, Detroit from the Michigan Supreme Court to my reply brief. Um, I think that's a very persuasive opinion. I, I believe it, it predates Klopfer. It's from 1926, but it pretty much said because of the Michigan Constitution, um, uh, provided for a speedy trial, the remedy was simply to issue a writ of mandamus uh, to the court below to recalendar the case. And I would ask this court to consider issuing a writ of mandamus to the prosecution or the district court to simply put the case back on the calendar. I also ask that the Court of Appeals opinion be reversed for a reason stated on the brief. Uh, I also ask lastly that if this court does not think that those procedural mechanisms are appropriate to simply review the court order directly since it did grant the conditional certiorari, uh, this way we do not elevate form over substance and review the merits of the case. Thank you, counsel. Thank you to everyone, Madam Clerk. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina will be in recess until the next. And, um, and thank you for your time until the next calling of the calendar. God save the state and this honorable court.